Two and a Half Admins, episode 126. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary Clara plug is FreeBSD versus Linux, this time package management. Yeah, and so in our continuing series to help bridge the gap between BSD and Linux, uh, we provide a bit of a Rosetta Stone on package management commands. So if it's something you know how to do on Linux and you're curious how you do the same thing on FreeBSD or vice versa, this article talks about some of the differences and kind of provides that ability to adapt the knowledge you have from one thing to another. S apt PKG G. <laughs> Done. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then. And the first one is the FAA outage, which grounded a whole bunch of flights in the US. Yeah, in particular, this is the first time the FAA had done a nationwide ground stop since the September 11th attack 20 some odd years ago. Database failures or terrorism, you heard it here first. <laughs> so basically, the FAA is saying that the uh, the service failure was due to a corrupt database file. And I haven't been able to find a whole lot of hardcore technical details about the NotAms system, the uh, the system that went down. But given its age, it's fairly safe to assume that it's either an old school mainframe or it is old school mainframe software running on an emulated old school mainframe. And we've seen people talk about, was the database journaling? Was it this? Was it that? Was the other? We're kind of guessing here, but judging by the the age of this system and by the absolute lack of interest in the United States government in proactively revamping software infrastructure, the thing this software most likely resembled the most on the back end that some of our listeners might actually be familiar with if you're old enough is like old school DBase 3 files, you know, .dbfs and .ndxs, which themselves were kind of like a precursor to the old school MySQL my ISOM database storage engine, which you may recognize is non-journaling and really doesn't like any kind of crash or power outage, which will almost certainly corrupt it. The symptoms that the FAA was discussing also kind of followed this pattern because they talked about having a problem with basically the results were getting squirrelier and squirrelier out of the system. They decided that a reboot was a good idea. The reboot required like 90 minutes. And when it came back up, the database just plain would not load at all. And everybody went into, oh God, panic mode. And again, for those of you who are gray enough bearded sysadmins to have worked with a lot of non-journaling databases, that should sound real familiar. The database gets squirrelier and squirrelier, but it's still sort of running. And you're like, Maybe a reboot would be a good idea, and then you reboot it, and then you regret it. <laughs> the little bit of detail we did get said that a contractor replaced some files and accidentally replaced one file with another, like got the names mixed up or something. So it's entirely possible that the, the corruption was just, that wasn't the file it was supposed to be. It was some other file rather than actual damage to the structure of a file. And also, it might be that the term database is used a little more loosely than we would hope in that the files weren't necessarily an actual database management system like DBase or something and more just a collection of files that have data in them. Because why else was an engineer manually replacing files on the disk before it was broken? Like as part of the routine maintenance, they were replacing one file with another and replaced the wrong one or something. <laughs> so yeah. Lots of recriminations about the fact that, you know, this is a system that was supposed to be upgraded, but the upgrade kept getting put off and put off in budgets and, and so on. But yeah, it is very alarming to hear that any system takes 90 minutes to reboot. It's like, what could possibly be happening there? 
I think you're not maybe giving that word reboot for credit and all the heavy lifting it's doing. Because I suspect by reboot, they meant actually including mounting the database and it becoming usable. Mm-hmm. And having worked with, you know, a few databases that were, you know, several hundred gigs to a couple terabytes in size. Yeah, 90 minutes to get one of those initially running doesn't sound that strange to me. And I was probably working with a lot hotter hardware at the time than the FAA, whatever they're running NotAms on and have been since, you know, like, what, the 50s? Well, I don't think NotAms is on the same hardware quite still. But yeah, definitely, even to your point, like if it's something more Myazam like the crash recovery steps can take a long time as it tries to even just verify the integrity of the database files to decide if it wants to start or not, which after an hour it decides no is the answer. It's like, well, you could have told me that earlier and we would have, you know, we'd be an hour further ahead in recovering. And keep in mind that this thing has to be the kind of size to manage all of the flights that are arriving and departing from, I think it's like 22,000 domestic airports, counting the big ones and the little ones that, that all have to subscribe to that system. This one doesn't manage the flights. It notice, It's the uh, notice to air missions. It's basically... Anything from like this runway is under construction, you can't use it. Uh, you can't fly over this area or like the president's plane is going to be flying here. So nobody can come within X miles of this airspace that's going to be a moving window. Or there were birds at the end of the runway at this airport. Be careful. It's like any kind of notification about stuff that might be happening that would affect the airlines. And so sometimes there might be more notices than there are flights even. The system's been criticized before. For example, a couple of years ago when there was uh, an incident where an airplane landed on the wrong runway, and it turns out the runway they landed on was supposed to be closed and under construction or whatever, and so there was a NOTAM about it, except for, you know, for that particular flight, the list of NOTAMs was 27 pages long, and the pilots were expected to know, read them all and understand them all, but they're not written in, like, English. They're all in, like, shorthand and acronyms. It's a code system that originated in the Navy in 1847, if I recall correctly. <laughs> <laughs> Not all the acronyms did, but yes, it was designed to be sent over like Morse code. So lots of short groupings of letters and not long words. And yes, the the concept behind NOTAM started uh, with the Navy in the 1800s where it'd be published in like a magazine uh, being like, hey, watch out for some rocks over here on the left side on the way into this port or whatever. And so, yeah, it covers a lot of different stuff and the notifications don't always expire when they should. And there's just a lot. And so the system itself is all kinds of problems, but it's also very important because pilots need to know when you can't fly over here or you, you know, you can't use that runway. Again, to my fellow very gray bearded sysadmins, you remember the bad old days when errors were literally just an error and a number and you always had to look up what it was? Yeah, think that, but you're a pilot and you need to understand all these things or else you might crash your plane (laughs) when you when you try to land at the runway that you're supposed to be headed to. Yeah, and it's all acronyms in short forms and, and stuff, so they're really dense to try to read. And if you picture getting 27 pages of those, and it's definitely, that's not 27 NOTAMs, that's 27 pages of short NOTAMs. And so, yeah, the database to select those, and it sounds very much like they don't have a very good system for figuring out which ones actually apply to me so I can read fewer of them as well. There's been a lot of heat generated about air traffic controllers having printed out strips of paper with all the NOTAMs that apply to a particular airport. 
And literally, they just have strips of paper on their desk, and people complained about that. And so the FAA has a plan to eliminate that practice by 2029. <laughs> that was the soonest they could they could get everything done in order to eliminate the little strips of paper littering all the air traffic controllers' desks. And they're going to do what? Make them all have an iPad? Ah, <laughs> uh, well, you know that's another one of those details that we mere mortals aren't being given. Yeah. <laughs> Now, it's not very common that you'll be reading OMG Ubuntu, Alan, but uh, it popped up in your various feed readers and saved searches and stuff recently with the future of ZFS on Ubuntu desktop is not looking good. Yeah, and I thought that was really kind of blown out of proportion. I understand that in the next release of Ubuntu, they're switching to the installer they use for the server version, and that's never had support for ZFS. So it's not so much that Ubuntu's removing support for ZFS from their installer, is that their new installer doesn't happen to have it. It does feel like a bit of a loss to Ubuntu users, but if there's enough demand for it, then it'll happen. And if there's not, then is it worth Ubuntu's time? Because the people that want to use ZFS are going to use it anyway. Yeah, I'm going to say it's not really, honestly, a, a step back for Ubuntu desktop users that want ZFS on root either. ZSys was never ready for prime time. It had some very ambitious goals that were never more than half fulfilled at best, and it did not produce a great user experience. If you really want ZFS on root on Ubuntu or on just about any other Linux distribution, you can have that. Go to zfsbootmenu.org. It's not that hard. The manual method involves you dropping to a shell in the midst of the installer for the distro of choice. And running quite a few commands. It's not that hard. It's it's a bit tedious. Uh, if you want it on Ubuntu, you can do it even easier than that. You you're still dropping to a shell in the middle of your live installer, but you're literally just Git cloning a single script and executing it. And poof, you get a ZFS on root with fully functional boot environments. Which again, ZSys never quite got there. So. Ideally, I would love to see Ubuntu moving forward in either incorporating ZFS boot menu itself or something similar in scope, which basically means, you know, achievable in a reasonable amount of time. I think if they do that, it will get a lot of traction and they'll want to keep going with it. But again, just scope problems are what killed ZSys, really. What really annoyed me about this article was that it fuels this myth that ZFS shouldn't be used on Ubuntu or Linux generally, and that's what ButterFS is for, and ZFS is only for FreeBSD. And all we're talking about is ZFS on root, and it's a very different story, ZFS on root versus ZFS for your data. And it just annoyed me that the very first line of this article was, I hate to say it, but it looks like Ubuntu on ZFS is a dead effort. I mean, that's just totally wrong. I think part of the problem there is that uh, there are an awful lot of users out there who really just, they're interested in the concept of a file system like ZFS or theoretically Butter that will allow them these advanced features like snapshotting and boot environments and all the things that you really would kind of need en route to save your bacon from screwing up your own computer, basically. Like, you know, oh, I went and installed, you know, 30 different packages last night in a drunken PPA and downloading rage. And like now my entire system is broken and I just wanted to go back the way it was. So for something like that, you need boot environments with, you know, a, a file system like ZFS or Butter. And for a lot of those users, they just, I, I don't think they really have the concept very much of a system where the root isn't the most important 
part of it. So it feels like if you can't have ZFS on root, then there's just no point in bothering. Now, obviously, I don't agree with that. I evolved my usage in the entirely opposite direction to the point where I'm like, I really don't give a crap about root because I can just blow it away and reinstall it in 10 minutes flat from a thumb drive. And nothing of value is lost because all the interesting bits are happening inside the pool and inside VMs that run in the pool. And because those VMs are on ZFS, then they get all these, you know, wonderful advantages, yada, yada, yada. But it seems like Joey was just kind of drinking from that particular Kool-Aid of thinking that ZFS on root is the only ZFS that matters. What really annoyed me about the whole thing, I would have gotten screamed at so hard if I had run that piece working for Ars Technica, not because of like the slant of the piece or what it says about the state of ZFS or, you know, yada, 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 but just because there was clearly no attempt made to verify any of these facts. There is no line in that article, you know, we reached out to Canonical and got no response for good reason. Because, I mean, come on, they know exactly who Joey is. He's the OMG Ubuntu guy. They would talk to him. And you can ask them about those things. I went to the Ubuntu Summit. I asked several Canonical folks, including the the, the guy who was the founding dev for ZSys and uh, some folks, you know, more senior to him. And everybody was like, yeah, ZFS support's not going anywhere. Uh, ZSys was deprecated, but ZFS absolutely is staying in Ubuntu. All you had to do is ask. Yeah, I don't know. I don't want to be too much into the semantics here, but do people see a difference between Ubuntu on ZFS and ZFS on Ubuntu? Well, again, a lot of people don't. That's exactly what I was saying before. There are a lot of people who just don't really understand the value or in a lot of cases, I think even the concept of, you know, I installed Ubuntu on EXT4, but I have this separate ZFS file system and, and here's why I do that and why I care about that. Because to, you know, to a large class of users, it feels a lot easier to say, well, here's all my data and I back up all my data because I can just copy it to a different thing and copy it back when I'm done versus dealing with problems in the operating system itself that just turn quickly into a horrible Lovecraftian nightmare. And if it takes you weeks to set your system up the way that you want it and you don't know how to fix it if you break it, and you keep doing things that break it, well then, yeah, you get really married to this idea of an operating system that is on top of ZFS that you can roll back after you screw it up. Yeah, you would definitely have to pry boot environments uh, from me. It's it's not something I'm going to give up willingly. Just try to imagine yourself as a computer user and not a sysadmin. Mm -hmm. And as just a computer user, somebody who just wants to log in and play games and browse the web and like do your thing, you've gotten used to having boot environments. And now somebody says you can't have them anymore, but it's okay because you can still have ZFS. You can't have the boot environment. Like you're probably going to grab pitchforks, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think the biggest problem with this article is it makes it sound like ZFS in general is the problem. Like, uh, well, well, Joe or, or Jim jumped on the first line saying, you know, Ubuntu and ZFS is dead effort. My biggest bone to pick, I think, was with the second sentence saying, you know, when Canonical added support for this contentious file system. I don't think ZFS is really that contentious. It still is in the Linux world because of the license issues. It is still contentious. I don't love that characterization, but that for me... That takes a very distant backseat to my issues with, well, the the journalism of the piece. And, you know, I get it. This is a blog. You know, it's not a major paper, you know, yada, yada, yada. But 
Joey exists in a pretty rarefied place in the Ubuntu news dissemination ecosystem, and I think he needs to step up his journalism game. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Something that's really been doing the rounds recently is a piece on ReviewGeek. Why the heck is Amazon selling these fake 16 terabyte portable SSD drives? And Josh Hendrickson bought one of these. I've actually seen them on Amazon and it's it looks like an SSD, but it's just ridiculously cheap and you know it's a scam. He knew it was a scam, but he set out to prove it. And what we're looking at here is something that looks like an SSD, but has a micro SD card plugged into a little USB adapter that has had the firmware hacked on it to make it look like it's 16 terabytes and not the 64 gigabytes that the SD card is. It's a common scam on Amazon and eBay and a bunch of other places. And uh, I mean, this is nothing new, is it? But at the same time, it doesn't get any less infuriating. The portable SSD form factor is a little new and the, the 16 terabyte size is a little larger than they've gone for before, but we've seen the exact same scams with thumb drives going back many years. And uh, yeah, they, they do just the absolute minimal effort in hacking the firmware to make it seem larger. And typically what happens is the map to the actual media sectors, it just wraps. So like it works fine if you like if you were to, for example, DD some data onto the drive. It works fine for the first 64 gigs, which is the size of the compact flash card. But once you get to the next sector past that 64 gigs, it just wraps around and overwrites it on sector zero again. <laughs> so uh, your, your results look fine when you copy some files onto it. And if you're using it like a normal user, for most folks, it'll probably take a while before they fill up that first 64 gigs and things start going horribly, horribly wrong. I remember seeing the first ones of these that were for external spinning hard drives. And so in addition to the little adapter and the SD card or whatever, there was like a giant bolt in it to make it heavy enough that you would believe it was a hard drive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, all SSDs is done and make that scam easier because you don't have to buy a bolt anymore. Yeah. And cheap SSDs tend to be pretty light anyway, in my experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, even with expensive ones, most of the weight's going to be like heat sinking rather than components. Yeah. I enjoy that extra little Susan of FU and that they used a USB 2.0 controller for the thing. So like <laughs> yeah. you can't even get the performance that you ought to get out of a 64 gig cheap compact flash card because you're bottlenecked down to USB 2.0. It's good stuff. Well, it actually has a, a USB-C connector though, right? <laughs> Which makes it got to be even bigger kick in the head. So the next thing we probably ought to talk about here is the fact that it's not just that scammers are selling these things. It's not even just that scammers are selling these things on Amazon, and Amazon really isn't doing 
anything to get these very obviously fraudulent listings off. But a lot of these things have huge numbers of positive star ratings and reviews on there. And this is symptomatic of a problem with Amazon in general that any Amazon shopper needs to be very careful of. The third-party vendors who are selling their products on Amazon frequently do something called review jacking or sometimes review merging. And what this means is they'll sell one product, get a bunch of positive reviews on that product, and then rather than creating a new product listing for a separate product, they just change the description of the first product. So this leaves the string of reviews for it intact, including the star ratings and even the things people say about it in text. You can check for this, and it's always a good idea. When you're looking at anything that you're a little bit suspicious of and you want to look at the reviews on Amazon, you want to try and find out, are all the things these people are reviewing the same thing I'm trying to buy? If you're trying to buy a USB drive and you see a whole bunch of reviews for a washing machine, well, there's your sign. Uh, th this is going to be something that's been review jacked. And it's just taking advantage of the hundreds or thousands of excellent reviews for some other legitimate product, putting it on top of this scam that makes them an incredibly larger profit margin per item sold and just cashing out. I want to push back on something you said. You said that Amazon isn't doing anything about these listings. I said much of anything, and I stand by that. Much of anything, yeah. Well, anywhere near enough is what I would say. Because they, when you point it out to them, sometimes they delete them and stuff, and they do occasionally get deleted via automatic checks or whatever. Well, even the article we're reading here says, you know, after it was posted, there's an update from Amazon and say, we do not allow product listings to be taken over or incorrect information to be listed. And we have zero tolerance for fake reviews. We have clear policies, blah, blah, blah. And we've removed all of these. And then the author of the article checked and it's like, all the ones I had mentioned are still alive. Yeah. So when we've got somebody who has bought one of these things to make a point and has reached out to Amazon and specifically reported tons of listings and has published an article about the whole thing and Amazon still hasn't removed most of those listings. Yeah, I'm not backing down off of my Amazon isn't doing much of anything about this problem. Some of this happens on Amazon in even a not malicious way. Like if you look at, regular hard drives. Sometimes they'll just decide to merge the reviews for a bunch of drives that seem related but aren't. Like, oh, here's some Seagate SATA drives and SAS drives with all the reviews mixed together. That's still malicious, Alan. It's a, it's maybe you, you could color it as a different kind, but they know what they're doing. It's not accidental. In particular, what I'm talking about, though, Amazon decided to merge the stuff, not the person listing the product. Hmm. Well, and also you'll get um, with external drives. I know you lot turn your noses up at these, but I, I get them and shock them because, uh, I don't know, I hate you. You hate your data. Yeah. <laughs> because the inside of your computer looks like the inside of your recording studio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you get, you know, different sizes, you know, eights, sixes, tens, twelves, fourteens, whatever. And you get the reviews for all of the different sizes, but it, they're all like uh, a WD My Book or whatever. And, that's probably Amazon rather than the sellers of them. Yeah, and, and it's really problematic when Amazon does that, but things that are even less, only loosely related. But the other problem is with these ones is, especially once this gets reported, in these particular cases, these items are fulfilled by Amazon. So the scammers made a bunch of these and then ship them to Amazon for Amazon to put in their warehouse so they'll have prime delivery and so on. 
but it should mean that once they get reported as a scam, Amazon should be able to open one, see it's a scam, and like go after the real people who they got shipped container loads of stuff from. There should be more of a paper trail back to the seller on these cases where it's not just somebody who signed up to Amazon and posted their product listing. They've established a relationship to have where Amazon warehouse and deliver this scam product for them. But Alan, we're talking about a company whose employees have to literally run around that warehouse and piss in bottles because they don't have time to go to the toilet. Am I the only one that's wondering now if there's some dark web list floating around, like letting you know which products to buy on Amazon that will actually be like a brick of heroin when it shows up to your house? (laughs) But there's no way they have the time to go and open them up and check them out and, you know, plug it into a computer and do all that. No way. Well, I'm not saying plug it into a computer or anything like that, but I'm just saying when they've got enough reports... The Amazon anti-fraud division, who Mm -hmm. isn't necessarily the people that Amazon's mistreating quite as badly, could actually do something about this. And more importantly, take steps beyond just remove the fake listing. Because if you remove the fake listing, they're just going to make another one. (laughs) It's very unclear to me what Amazon does with the stuff that's in their warehouse when they find out it's fake. It's going into the landfill with all the returns and you know it, Alan. Yeah. They might very well say, hey, vendor, you should take all this stuff back. But what are the odds the vendor is going to pay for shipping to get that garbage back? Nah, it's going in the landfill. Part of my question is, is it that or is Amazon just wait and let them post a listing again? When we're talking about scams, this blatant 16 terabyte, you know, portable SSD for under $100. I get Amazon is an organization with massive scale and that things that are human intensive, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it seems difficult to believe there's not enough room in the margins to have like, I don't know, a small room with marginally bright, technically inclined 20-somethings just looking over new product listings and going, oh, no, that looks bogus, dude. Like, come on, come on. Yes, like literally, if you go to post stuff on eBay, if you post a bunch of stuff really suddenly, eBay will like, show us a picture and prove you actually have this. It's not even that hard. It can't take that many people just to drag an eyeball over new product listings as they show up and be like, okay, I'm not saying they catch everything. I'm not saying they catch close to everything. I'm saying just things as obvious as 16 terabyte SSD for under $100 in 2023. Like, it cannot be that hard to have somebody dragging enough of an eyeball over things to be like, hmm, nah, dude, that's bad. We should look into that further. Even if the volume is so great that they can't do that. Like when someone reports something, that team looking at it and being like, yeah, let's take that down before it hits too many people. Not only that, but like when the report comes in on one bogus portable SSD, you know, yada, 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 that's like super obvious. Not only should they actually take down that item, like that should really be your trigger. Hey, we should look for more scams of this class and get rid of some of those proactively. But nah. Exactly. Like we saw in the article here, it's like, here's a bunch of made up brand names of these. Yeah. So once you report one, then somebody at Amazon should be like, let's just look for greater than 16 terabyte SSDs in this category and be like, okay, there's a bunch. Let's chuck them all. I suppose it's always possible that the human fraud division employees are also pissing in jugs (laughs) and pooping in shopping bags. I suppose. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. 
Chase writes, Curious to hear what you guys use for IP schemes. I'm going to be redesigning the network layout for our company, and I've settled on either 10.vlan.site.device or 10.site.vlan.device. If it helps, this is an environment with a dozen sites that are mostly similar. So the first thing is you probably shouldn't be focusing that hard on a rigid IP schema to begin with. You should probably be using DNS to avoid needing to do that because ultimately what you're trying to do is you're trying to make raw IP addresses human readable, which is a relatively laudable goal, but DNS does a much better job of that and more maintainable job of that. With that said, if you still want to do a more rigid schema, you want to go from the biggest group down to the smallest group. So it's going to be 10.site.vlan.host because a site has multiple VLANs and a VLAN has multiple hosts, and that's the direction you go. Unless you have a really weird network where the VLAN spans sites, definitely the latter, like Jim said. Well, it's kind of like the date thing, isn't it? The international standard is year, month, day. Yes, and that's how all of it should always work. Yeah, it's about what changes most frequently, isn't it? And what stays the same most frequently. Well, it's just most significant to least significant. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Most significant to least significant. I would add on top of that, again, if you're doing this kind of thing to begin with, it's usually a good idea to have the host IP addresses, you know, the, the last octet in your IP address. You probably want to have like a schema for that as well. Like I worked at a place where all printers were dot five. So, you know, you would have a site name and then we didn't really do VLANs as much, but you could sometimes have like a subsite, like, you know, a particular building on a particular campus. And then beneath that, like, you know, printers go here, routers go there, web servers go there. So you, you can, you get to where you can look at the IP address and you have a good idea what that device is. And if it's on a small enough scale, maybe you're managing a fleet of like retail stores and they each have one receipt printer and one label printer. Well, you can have the receipt printer and the label printer be on the same IP address in each store on each separate subnet. So it becomes easier to figure out. But again, with that said, what you will find almost immediately is that something in your organization isn't as simple and doesn't quite fit that model. And that's where using DNS instead is much better. So rather than saying for store number 89 on VLAN 2, the printer is going to be 10.89.2.5 because 5 is where my printers are. Instead, you have store 89.vlan2.printer is like, you know, that's literally in your DNS. Although DNS is weird because it's most of least significant is the other way around. So you'd probably have yeah. printer dot store 89 dot. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, you're, you're correct. With DNS, I do it the other way around. So it's printer dot, you know, it would be printer dot VLAN dot site in that case. And keep in mind, like, we're not talking public DNS when we talk about this. I mean, if you need to have this public, that's fine. Most people don't. They want to keep it private. Doing private DNS is easy and worth it. Whether you're doing your DNS on Windows, you can set up zones quite easily in, uh, you know, in your Active Directory in the DNS Manager. If you've got Linux boxes, you can just set up bind. I prefer to do it that way. Have a nice, simple, plain text zone file like God intended. Edit it as you see fit. If you need to integrate that into your Active Directory, you can just set up a forwarder entry in your Active Directory DNS that says, hey, everything for this TLD, maybe your business is... Uh, I don't know, all, all of the examples I'm thinking of are obscene. So let's just say you run the obscene store. So you make a private TLD dot obscene. So you can go to store 38 dot obscene 
and get your actual result, or you can go to printer.store38.obscene and go straight to that printer, that gets really amazing once you set that up and you realize how nice it is to be able to sit in your sysadmin throne of doom and literally just hit like a printer's web interface just by typing in his name and what store it's in and it works. The one thing I will say about that is make sure you do .lan, not .obscene. Otherwise, next week, the new GTLD that will be announced is .obscene, and suddenly those DNS will try to resolve on the internet. And it can also cause you problems with getting SSL certificates. Well, if you're using your own organization name, then it that's a lot. Le- I mean, yeah. the obscene thing was a dumb example. Right, but just a, a bunch of companies have run into the problem of Whatever they used before is now a real generic TLD. Right. That's also a relatively easy fix, though. I mean, you can just change your private TLD if you have to. Yeah, but retraining everybody in the organization to know that the URLs are different now. (laughs) It's like, just make it something that's not going to have that happen to begin with. Uh, you'll, You'll thank yourself later. But like if you're a chain of sporting goods stores in North America, and then suddenly .dix becomes an actual TLD. That's just good fun right there. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com is the email address to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at jorrest.com slash mastodon. You can find me on Twitter at jrssnet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.